Good news. If you're here, God isn't done with you yet. Life is full of seasons, and each season brings with it new beginnings. New life. These seasons are full of opportunity and uncertainty. Their endings are often bittersweet. But each ending carries the promise of a new beginning. All right, well, welcome. Hope you guys are doing well. That wasn't, I didn't greet you very well. How are you doing? Now I get more participation that way. That's good. That's better than all the other services. You should be proud. Hey, listen, I want to thank you for coming. Glad you're here. want to welcome those of you who may be joining us from another campus, maybe online, maybe in Asheville. Uh, Maybe uh, you're joining us from the North Charleston campus. Glad you guys are along for the ride as well. Hey, listen, uh, we just came off of a holiday weekend, but we still have some celebrating that we need to do here at Seacoast. You may know that Seacoast is part of a church planning network called The Ark. It's the Association of Related Churches. And in fact, the Ark was more or less born out of Seacoast under Pastor Greg's leadership. And the vision of Ark is to plant life-giving churches in communities all over the world. And so this weekend, because of your generosity, we're launching 11 new churches around the country. That's pretty exciting. And what that means is this, that uh, whether it's in a high school gym or a cafeteria or a movie theater or wherever, that there are going to be people who are coming together to worship God in, in places like this, places like San Antonio, Texas, Oklahoma City, Baton Rouge, Sacramento, Manhattan, Charlotte. Also in, we had, need two slides, there's so many churches this weekend, Johnson, I-A, I had I stumbled a little bit there, but I'm going to go with Iowa. I'm pretty sure that's it. <laughs> Gilbert, Arizona, and Lansing, Michigan. And then these two on the left I want to call your attention to, the Net Church in Cleveland, Tennessee, and Front Range Christian Church in Colorado. These are additional campuses of churches that were planted directly out of Seacoast. And so it's pretty exciting that we're seeing additional campuses now from churches that were planted out of this church. And here's the thing. I know that it can be easy to kind of look at this screen week to week when we talk about launching new churches and think, oh, this is great. Seacoast is doing some really cool stuff around the world. But it's not Seacoast. It's you guys. You guys are Seacoast. And it's because of your generosity that this happens. We're just organizing the generosity, and this is the result. So I really think you guys need to give yourselves a hand this weekend for what you're seeing. One more thing uh, before we start. Uh, Next weekend, we're going to do something really cool. We're going to have Max Lucado here to finish our series on Joshua. Now, I don't know if you know Max, uh, but he's written a book on Joshua, so he's probably going to have some really cool things to say to us. He's one of the uh, most popular Christian authors and speakers out there today. He's written, I I think it's nearly 100 books, and I'm told that almost... 80, there are almost 80 million of his books in print today. That wouldn't include the electronic versions. So that's pretty incredible. Reader's Digest named Max Lucado the best Christian preacher in America. And so we have canceled Pastor Greg 
subscription to Reader's Digest. And we're going to send them some DVDs of Pastor Greg because we feel like he should be part of that mix. But we're really excited about Max coming. And here's what I would say. If you're planning to come, we want you to be here, but let me encourage you to do this. Get here early. If you like to sit down during worship, and by looking around the room, I can tell that you all do, you want to get here early because I have a feeling it will be standing room only. And then also, if you've got friends that you want to invite, please invite them. But if you've got friends who are fire marshals, wait until the week after next to invite them. We want them to come, but next weekend is probably not the best weekend for all of us. Last time I spoke to you guys, I told you a story about a guy who uh, rescued nearly 700 Jewish children during World War II. And I, I was a mess. It was a hard story to get through. I was a mess. You were a mess. That made me feel a little bit better, but still. Two years ago or so, I told you a story about me when I was swimming in a national swim meet and lost my swimsuit. Some of you probably remember that. And so here's my concern, that I'm quickly earning the reputation as the overly emotional and underclothed pastor that you get to hear from. And so to be fair, there's a solid chance I'm keeping that trend up today, okay? I just want you to know where we're going. I promise I'm keeping it PG, but there's a solid chance that I'm going to continue that pattern today. So a couple of years ago, our air conditioning unit uh, began to show us that it was in its final stages of life by breaking down every couple of weeks. And it was a, a super sweet and special time in the Martin home. My family was really psyched about it. Thankfully, we had a warranty on it, but the process of getting it fixed was still really painful and expensive. And so um, it had broken down so much that I was on a first name basis with a few of the operators at the warranty company that I had to call to schedule the repairs with. I also, it had broken down so much that I began to know their policies and procedures better than they did. For example, I knew that when the air conditioner broke down within 30 days of the last repair, they had to send out the person who was supposed to have fixed it last time. They couldn't send out a new technician. They had to send out the person who didn't fix it properly the first time. So it was July. Our air conditioning broke again in July. Like I said, it was just super wonderful. And so I called the warranty company to schedule the repair. I spoke to Dolores. Now, Dolores was a really sweet uh, woman who said that she knew how hot it was in South Carolina and that if I needed a place to stay, I could come stay with her, which I thought was weird. But I was, I was not in a position to turn Dolores down at that moment. So we scheduled the repair and the technician came out. I left the office uh, here at the church to go meet him. It was about midday. And so, you know, around 12, 1 o'clock in the afternoon, and I remember it was really hot that day, like 100 degrees outside, and the thermostat inside our house read 90 degrees. So I went to the house, met the technician, and uh, he told me what he was going to be doing. And I thought, well, I'm not going to sit in this house and wait for him to fix it. If I'm going to be sweating, I'm just going to do something productive. So I, I put on some old clothes and decided I'm going to go mow the grass. While he fixes the AC unit, I'm going to mow the grass. So I'm doing that. As I'm mowing the grass, I notice that he's just kind of walking in and out of my house. Now, he doesn't know there's nobody home. Like my, my wife could have been there. My daughter could have been there. And I thought, well, that would be weird if he just busted up into the house. And he's, he's not knocking, not ringing the bell. And I'm thinking, dude, you don't live here. Knock on the door. But nonetheless, he just keeps walking in. He's probably just trying to be efficient because he's hot too. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to worry about it. I just need this guy to get my air fixed. 
So I keep mowing the grass, and I finish about the same time he finishes fixing the AC unit. I had gone inside to get a glass of water, and I hear the door open. He just walked in my house again. Again, no doorbell, no knock, nothing. And I thought, just let it go, Adam. It's too hot to get worked up over this. And so he showed me, here's what I did. I fixed your AC unit. I just need you to sign off the on the repair, and we'll be all good. So I did. I thanked him, and he left. And so I'm sitting there in the kitchen, and I'm sweating because I've just mowed the grass. It's still 90 degrees in the house. I've got to go back to the office, and I'm thinking, I'm going to have to get a shower. I can't go back like this. So I just, my laundry room was right off of our kitchen, and I decided I'm going to take my clothes and toss them in the washing machine. Rather than toss them in the hamper where they'll just smell awful for the rest of the day, I'll toss them in the laundry machine, start that load of laundry. We don't have to come home to smelly clothes. So I did. I walked over, tossed my clothes in, and then went back to the sink to drink my water wearing fewer clothes. And by, by fewer, I mean none. And so I'm standing there in front of the sink, drinking my glass of water, and the front door opens. <laughs> Stuff always happens to me. And I'm thinking, all right, my wife is at work. My kids are at their friends' houses. Who just walked in my front door, and are they prepared for what they're about to see? <laughs> And so I can hear footsteps coming through the living room, and I realize it's the AC repairman. He's just walked in my house again. And so I'm thinking, all right, what, what do I do here? I've got a few ways I could play this, I suppose. Option one is I dive in the pantry. I'm not sure if that would have been more or less weird to have a naked guy in the pantry. <laughs> Option two would be grab a dish towel and just make the best of it. Or option three, do nothing. Now, Regrettably, I chose option three. <laughs> and so I'm standing in the kitchen with my glass of water and I hear the footsteps coming through the living room. And as he gets closer to the doorway, he said, Mr. Martin, I just have one more thing I need you to sign. All I could get out was, well, okay, but... And he comes around the corner and he goes, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry, Mr. Martin. I didn't know. And he kind of scurries out the front door. He said, I'll leave it in the mailbox. He jumps in his car. And I swore I heard tires squeal as he drove away. And I'm standing there with my water thinking, I bet he rings the doorbell next time. So fast forward three weeks from that date, and the air conditioning unit breaks again. So I call the warranty company and we schedule the repair and they give me a confirmation call with the technician who's supposed to come out and I realize it's not the same technician. Well, I know their policies. So I call them back and I said, hey, thanks for the confirmation call, but you know, it's been within 30 days. You've got to send the old guy back out before you can send the new guy. Like he's got to fix it right before we can get someone else out here. And the woman goes, oh, you're right. You know, let me check on that. So she puts me on hold and goes to check the notes. And she comes back and she said, Mr. Martin, you're exactly right. That is our policy. But we called the other guy and he doesn't want to come back out. <laughs> and I thought, that is totally fair. Very reasonable for him to feel that way. And for me, it was a great reminder that while we place a really high value on First impressions, how many of you would agree that last impressions are pretty important too? <laughs> and so here we are in our final two weeks of our Joshua series. And Joshua is about to speak to the nation of Israel for the very last time. This is his last impression to Israel. 
Now, how many of you know that you choose your words more carefully when you know they'll be the last words you ever get to say? Would you agree with that? So Joshua was no different. And in chapters 23 and 24, we see what he's got to say to Israel for the final time. So we're calling this message Joshua's Top Three. Now, if you remember last week, Pastor Greg gave us a great message from chapter 14 where he talked about Caleb. So you might be wondering, why are we jumping from 14 to 23 and 4? And what I can tell you is this, it's really a function of time more than anything else. We just don't have time to go through every single thing that happened. But in 15 to 22, the same thing is happening in the book of Joshua. Joshua is allotting the land to the nation of Israel. He's telling each tribe exactly what they will have in the promised land. Like this is your northern boundary, and this is your southern boundary, and this is your this would be the southern, and this is your eastern boundary. And so he's, he's telling each tribe where you will be and what your boundaries are. That's what we see. And if we could only take one thing away from that block of text in the book of Joshua, I think it should be what happens in chapter 21. Toward the very end, it says this, so the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give their ancestors, and they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, and not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. That's really important and really good news, that not one of God's promises to Israel failed. Every one of them was fulfilled. So with that as our, as our baseline, we can look at chapters 23 and 24. And I've pulled just a few verses from each of those chapters, and here's how it begins. In 23, it says, The years passed, and the Lord had given the people of Israel rest from all their enemies. Joshua, who was now very old, called together the elders, the leaders, the judges, and the officers of Israel. He said to them, I'm now a very old man, and you have seen everything the Lord your God has done for you during my lifetime. <clears throat> The Lord your God has fought for you against your enemies. I have allotted to you as your homeland all the land of the nations yet unconquered, as well as the land of the, uh, the nations that we have already conquered. This, will, this land will be yours, for the Lord your God will himself drive out all the people living there now. You will take possession of their land just as the Lord your God promised you. And it goes on in 24 to say this. Then Joshua summoned all the tribes to Shechem, in addition to the elders, the leaders, the judges, and the officers. And they came together and presented themselves to God. And he said, When you crossed over the Jordan River and came to Jericho, the men of Jericho fought against you, as did the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, and all the other ites. But I gave you victory over them. And I sent terror ahead of you, to drive out the two kings of the Amorites. It was not your swords or bows that brought you victory. I gave you land you had not worked on, and I gave you towns you did not build, the towns where you're now living, and I gave you vineyards and olive groves for food, though you did not plant them. So fear the Lord wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols your ancestors worshipped when they lived beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. But if you refuse to serve the Lord, then choose today whom you will serve. But as for me and my family, we will serve the Lord. 
Why don't we stop and pray? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we get a picture of who you are, that you are the God who fights for us, that you are the God who stands with us, and that you fulfill every good promise that you make to us. We pray that right now you give us eyes to see whatever it is you have for us, whatever it is we need to hear, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if we're calling today's message Joshua's top three, then what are the three things that Joshua wanted to communicate to the nation of Israel? Here's the first one. This is what the first thing I think he wanted to communicate to them. Receive what God has already given you. Receive what God has already given you. It sounds very simple, right? But Israel struggled with this. I, I don't know if you remember, you may know the story, but just to put us all on the same page, when God led Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery in Egypt, he made them a promise. He told Moses, I'm going to give these people a land of their very own. And so he told Moses, send some spies into that land and check it out. So Moses did that. The spies went off. They spent about a month there checking out the land. And then they came back and they gave this report. You heard Pastor Greg read some of this last week. From Numbers 13, the the spies that came back said, We entered the land you sent us to explore. It is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. And here's the kind of fruit it produces. They brought some of of it back with them. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses, saying, let's go at once and take the land. We can certainly conquer it. But the other men who went with him, who had explored the land, disagreed. They said, we can't go up against them. They are stronger than we are. God had promised Israel that they would have a land of their very own. But Israel doubted, and they were afraid. And did you catch their response to Caleb? It started with the words, two words, we can't. We can't do that, Caleb. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. And so here's a question I think that it's worthwhile for us to kick around in our head. Where are we using the word can't when God has already told us to use the word can Where are we doing that? Where are we using the word can't in our lives when God has already told us to use the word can? Have you ever had a thought like this? God could never forgive someone like me. That's a can't. Or have you ever thought, I don't know if God can ever really heal the pain that I'm feeling. That's a can't. Or have you ever thought, I'm not sure that God can use me to do anything that really matters. That's another can't. So what do we do when that kind of thing happens? At times, we we allow ourselves to let the fear and doubt influence what we know about God instead of letting what we know about God to influence or drive out our fear and doubt. So how do we get around it? I think the only way we can do it is that we have to constantly remind ourselves what we know about God. So when we have a thought like, God could never forgive me, we can turn to 1 John and read, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins 
and we're reminded of God's mercy and grace. And when we feel like we may never come out of the pain that we're carrying, we can look at God's promises in the Psalms and read, He binds up, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. And we're reminded that when we stand in those storms in life, God stands with us. And when we feel like we're inadequate for the opportunities that are presented to us, we can look at what Paul tells us in Philippians 4 and read, For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And we're reminded that a life fully surrendered to God has no boundaries. No boundaries. What are the promises from Scripture that God has already given you? The promises that will strengthen you to stand up and to take one more step towards the future He has for you. Just like God had a new story, a new land, and a new future for Israel, He has a new story and a new future for us. But will we receive it? Joshua wanted the people to receive what God had already given them. And in the same way, we have to receive what God has already given us. But that's not easy. And I think there's one thing that we have to do before that, before we can really receive what God has already given us. I think we have to remove any walls that remain. And that's the second thing I think Joshua wanted Israel to know that they needed to remove any walls that remain. When Israel crossed the Jordan, they had a choice. They had a choice of whether they would stay there or push further into the land that God had promised them. They could have thought, hey, it's pretty nice here, Joshua. How about we just stay here? I know it's not very big, not, not nearly big enough for an entire nation but it's not bad. It's better than wandering around in the desert. Desert. How about we just set up our city here? The problem was this. God has created, just like Israel, God has created a life for us that is greater than anything we could ever think to create for ourselves. Now, I don't know if you noticed but it's a banner we wave here at Seacoast every weekend when we give the parting blessing. We look at what Paul tells us in Ephesians that God is able to do what? Immeasurably more than all we could even think to ask or imagine of him. So could Israel have settled for the land they found just on the other side of the Jordan? Sure, they could have stayed right there, but they would have missed out on the rest of what God had for them. But before they could receive that, some walls had to come down. Specifically, the wall around Jericho had to come down. Do you remember that? But there were other walls for Israel. The wall of fear had to come down. The wall of doubt had to come down. And before we can receive everything that God has for us, there may be some walls that need to come down. Some of us need to remove, just like Israel, a wall of fear or of doubt. Some of us may need to remove a wall of complacency. Some of us may need to remove a wall of, of disobedience. And some of us need to remove a wall of discouragement. Now, if, I'm, if I'm being honest, 
my wife and I have been staring down a wall of, of discouragement for several months now. The past 12 months for us have been some of the hardest we've ever faced in our 21 years of marriage. Uh, Dana and I both came from homes where marriages fell apart. And I don't say that with any, any bitterness at all because my parents and, and step-parents are some of the heroes in my life. I just say it with this, with an awareness that despite how much our parents loved us, divorce left scars on both of us. Dana and her sister were raised by their mother. And I have to say this real quickly, that watching my mom do it and watching uh, their mom uh, do it as well, I have tremendous respect for single parents and the loads that they carry. I realize that uh, this was not plan A, but you are making the best of plan B. And so just massive respect to you. And I want you to know that as a church, we stand with you. We'll stand for you and, and do everything we can to encourage you. For Dana, the scars that were left behind from the divorce were feelings of rejection and abandonment. And she battled those fears for most of her life. And I don't know if you've ever dealt with depression, but any of you who have, you, you may know that it's a little bit like wind. There are some days when you hardly notice it. And then there are other days when you feel like it's going to rip my house apart. And as Dana began to chase down those fears in therapy, the winds became stronger. And her depression moved from mild to severe. The emotional symptoms got worse, and then there were physical symptoms that followed it. We were told this was normal. We were told that in order to get to a breakthrough, sometimes you have to go through a breakdown. But that is not a lot of comfort when you feel like depression is swallowing you. It's incredibly hard to watch someone you love struggling just to make it through their day because you want for them what God promised us all in John 10 when he said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the fullest, have it abundantly. But here's what I've learned about abundant life, that the path to abundant life is rarely easy because we have to learn that in the empty, heavy places that we live in sometimes, that God alone is still enough. God alone is still enough. Sometimes in life, there are walls in front of us. And it can be tempting to take a defensive position and say to yourself, this is far enough. God might have more for me, but if I keep pushing, I might get hurt. And God's message to us is the same as it was to Israel. Don't be afraid of that wall. And don't settle for where you are today. I am giving you everything that is beyond that wall. So we must remove the walls that remain if we want to receive everything that God has for us. Now, I don't want to discourage anybody, but I feel like I need to say this, that uh, you probably can't do this on your own. Dana and I have not been able to walk through this on our own. And the times when we've tried to do it on our own, those have been the times when we've been most discouraged. You can't take down walls by yourself. It's not a one-person job. It just doesn't work. We've pulled in family, friends, mentors, counselors, anybody who can help us keep our eyes on God's promises. 
Because while we've been facing this wall of discouragement and and depression that has been big and uh, scary and sometimes overwhelming, we both believe that it is going to come down. In fact, we've already started to see it crumble a little bit. So we know it is going to come down. So my encouragement to you today is this. It's the same encouragement that I've been holding on to for the past several months. Completely remove any wall that remains, anything that stands in the way of what God has already given you. And don't you dare settle for where you are today. The third thing that I think Joshua wanted Israel to understand was this. He wanted them to resolve their identity before their identity was questioned. We live in this culture today that seems to regularly attack who we are, our identity. It says, you're not smart enough. You're not successful enough. You're not pretty enough. You're not thin enough. You don't wear enough clothes. Maybe that one's just for me, but you might relate. I don't know. Could be true. We think we know who we are, but then we hear these constant messages that we are not enough. I want to tell you a quick story uh, from Luke chapter 8. It's about a time when Jesus came across the Sea of Galilee, and as he approached the shore, the boat landed, and he walked up onto the beach. A man named Jairus came to him, and Jairus came up to him and said, Jesus, will you please come and heal my daughter? She's dying. And so Jesus agreed, and they they started to walk towards Jairus' house. But as they were walking, Jairus' servants came, and they said, your daughter has died. Don't bother the teacher anymore. And before Jairus could even respond, Jesus looked at him, and he said, don't be afraid. Just have faith, and she will be healed. And so they continued walking. And as they approached the house, Jesus took Peter, James, John, Jairus, and his wife into the room where the little girl was. And then he reached out his hand and he touched the girl. And he said in a loud voice, My child, get up! My child, get up! I wonder if some of you need to hear those words today. It says that her life immediately returned to her. And then this is my favorite verse, the very last one. It says this, her parents were overwhelmed. Seems really obvious, right? But the reason I love it is, if you look in the Bibles we have, our versions have words like overwhelmed and astonished. Her parents were overwhelmed. And those are perfectly accurate words, but the original Greek uses a different word, and the the meaning is just a little bit bigger. It says this, literally, it means to be in such a state of fear and or amazement that you are rendered immovable. To be in such a state of fear and or amazement that you are rendered immovable. It means they were so blown away by what they saw, they were paralyzed. Their minds just couldn't compute what they had seen. And sometimes life does that to us. Sometimes life hits us so hard, we're just frozen. It takes our breath away. But in his goodness, God is able to use moments like those to make us immovable later when the challenges come. 
a chapter later, there were a bunch of religious leaders who were stirring up the people. These, these leaders hated Jesus. And they were stirring up the, the people to believe that Jesus was either a madman or he was possessed by a demon. And so as they were persuading the people, here's my question. How easily persuaded was Jairus? How easy was it for them to persuade Jairus? It, the text doesn't say. But my guess is not very. Jairus knew who Jesus was. He had seen the man up close. And after getting a clear picture of who Jesus was, Jairus became clearer about his own identity. That's the funny thing about identity. The more we begin to understand who God is, the more we begin to understand ourselves because he is the author of everything that we are. So if we want to know who we are, we understand who he is. That's what happened to Jairus. Jairus heard everything the religious leaders were saying, but he had become immovable. Jairus started that day with questions desperate questions, the kind that maybe you've had in your life. His sounded like, Jesus, please heal my daughter. But he ended that day with clarity, knowing who Jesus was and resolving his own identity as somebody who would follow him forever. Same thing happened to Joshua. Joshua watched God give the people their own land. Joshua watched God drive out larger, more powerful nations. Joshua watched God fulfill every promise to Israel. And the more he saw of God, the more convinced Joshua became about his own identity until in chapter 24, it's a declaration of who he is when he looks at the people and he says, guys, figure it out. Choose today who you're gonna serve. But as for me and my family, we are going to serve God. In life, there are going to be times when our identity is questioned and times when our character is tested, but being resolved about who we are before those times come will anchor our identities and it'll make us immovable no matter what the world around us says no matter what the circumstances may be. I want to tell you one story to close. Dana and I have some friends who are missionaries in Europe, Josh and Joanna, and they have three kids. And one day their uh, three-year-old son woke up complaining of pain in his leg. He continued to complain throughout the day, and so they took him to see the doctor. The doctor examined him and discovered that there was a hard mass in his leg, so he ordered some tests. The tests showed a tumor about the size of an egg. And so they started the biopsy process and learned that it was an aggressive form of cancer. The doctors charted a course of treatment, but they did not present Josh and Joanna with a lot of hope. And as treatment began, the doctors discovered that the cancer had spread from his leg to his liver, and to his bones. Josh and Joanna went from having a healthy child to worst-case scenario in just a matter of days. The, their three-year-old son 
was hooked up to just about every machine in the hospital. His kidneys were beginning to shut down. He was on full oxygen, and his heart was still beating at 190 beats per minute. And then the doctor told Josh and Joanna something no parent ever wants to hear. He told them that their son had fought about as hard as anyone could expect him to fight. And if he were just battling this cancer in one area of his body, he'd have about a 5% chance of survival. But he was battling this cancer in multiple areas throughout his body. And so his chances were even worse. The doctor told them that they needed to prepare to say goodbye. That their son simply didn't have enough strength left in him to keep fighting. So they came in with their other two children. They prayed they wept, and they said goodbye. Their son continued to fight through the night, and the doctors continued to monitor him. The next morning, they came to Josh and Joanna, and they said, there's something we can't explain. We've been pediatric oncologists for decades, and we've never seen this before. His heart rate is normal. Not normal for a cancer patient, but normal. We don't know what's happening. In the days and weeks that followed, he continued to improve and he became strong enough to begin chemotherapy. He completed 15 rounds of treatment and today there's no evidence of cancer in his body. But this is the best part. The doctors had told them that this was one of the worst types of cancer they'd ever seen. And that eventually, their son simply wouldn't have enough strength to keep fighting. That his strength would fail. But what I haven't told you is the name Josh and Joanna chose for their son three years earlier before anyone knew anything about the cancer he would have to battle, before his parents were told that their son didn't have enough strength to keep fighting. When he was born, they gave him the name Gabriel. And Gabriel means God is my strength. Gabriel's identity was resolved three years before it was tested. And in the same way, we have to resolve who we are before the trials come. If we will receive all that God has already given us and completely remove any walls that stand in the way and resolve who we are before we are tested, then just like Israel, we can have a new beginning and a new story that is greater than anything we ever thought possible. Let's pray. God, we thank you 
We thank you for stories like Gabriel's that show us that when we are all out of strength, you are not. And that uh, when it is hard and scary, you alone are still enough. And so I pray, Lord, we would take uh, from this place whatever it is you are giving to us now and give us courage to take steps into whatever you have for us next. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.